Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahirrabbilalamin. Wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala sayyidina wa maulana muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Allahumma alimna ma yanfa'una wa anfa'na bima allamtana. Wa zidna min fadlika ilman wa ta'lima innaka ala kulli shayin qadiru wa ba'd. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Alhamdulillah, this will be our final session before the new year and we can check the dates for when we come back together and we're just checking to see what we left off. One, 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 okay. So just to do a bit of a recap, uh, in the previous sections or the previous paragraphs of this long section, the Sheikh was talking about how it's not just human beings who have reverence ta'aleem for the Messenger of Allah but also inanimate objects things like rocks, trees, stones, the moon, uh, animals those, those are animate. So he talks about those things, animate and inanimate, and inanimate objects that have reverence and honor for the Prophet And I believe we left off on the story of the poisoned meat, correct? Okay. So this section, this is the last paragraph of page 100, and then going through the rest of this section, it ends at page 104, really 103, and then we get to part two of this book, and part two of the book, as you see, is, is a different section altogether, and part two will begin with today after we finish this section, and that is on the blessed names of the Prophet and that will take us some time to get through when we get back, and uh, so let's, let's uh, complete this section that we're on uh, from the bottom of page 100. So the Shaykh says, a sheep spoke to the Prophet after it had been slaughtered out of love and fear for him. Anas ibn Malik anhu related, a Jewish woman came to the Prophet with poisoned meat. The Prophet ﷺ ate something of it and it had been poisoned. The Prophet ﷺ asked her why she did it and she said, I wanted to kill you. He said, Allah would not give you power over me. In the hadith of Jabir, as related by Abu Dawood, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said to his companions, Stop eating. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, then summoned the woman and said to her, Did you poison this meat? The woman said, Who told you? He said, This piece of meat in my hand informed me. There are many narrations of the talking sheep after it was slaughtered and cooked again out of love 
and fear for the Prophet it feared that it would enter his noble stomach. So what he's getting at is there are actually several riwayat of this incident of the Jewish woman who had poisoned the meat that they had uh, prepared and offered to the Prophet The narration mentions him taking it and placing it in his blessed mouth when it relayed to him, and this is the communication on a subtle level that we don't perceive, that it had in fact been poisoned. Now most people who have studied a little bit of the seerah uh, are familiar with this story. And what you find is that in a single story you can look at it from different perspectives. You can look at that story from the perspective of the perfidy and betrayal of those Jewish tribes in their attempts to assassinate the Prophet You can look at the political intrigue and the political effect that had on the decisions made about those Jewish tribes and their presence in and around Medina. That's a very standard angle from the seerah. But you see from the, him citing this narration that there's another angle you can look at. And you can look at what is the mystery behind the communication. How that morsel of sheep communicated that and how that was received by the Prophet in this miraculous way, communicating that it had in fact been poisoned. So there's a bigger lesson in this, which is when you study the seerah, you have to try to read it not just from the lens of the ghahir, of the outward, but you also need to read between the lines and see what else is going on in the unseen realms that shape those events. So the point of him citing the story is not the details of why he was poisoned or they attempted to poison him and what happened afterwards. The reason why he cites it is to make a point that uh, inanimate and animate objects have time and time again expressed their honor, respect, and reverence for the Prophet They have expressed their love towards him in a variety of ways. And this would be one way. If you are a sheep, what is your purpose of life? Your purpose of existence is to manifest your sheepness as it is. And the most ideal way that's manifested is by you living and eating and grazing and reproducing and then ultimately being slaughtered by a believer who then consumes you and you become the means, the sabab, of that person having nutrition and strength to carry out their purpose of existence, which is ibadah, you being the fuel for that higher being ser uh, serving their Lord. So that's, that's the best life of a sheep, right? Now sheep are eaten by all sorts of people and killed in all sorts of ways, legitimate and illegitimate, and they are a lower class of existence, so it is what it is for them. But that's the highest expression. And here, because the animals and inanimate objects have a degree of uh, intelligence and awareness, what we learn from this is that the sheep communicated that, or that morsel communicated that, uh, out of fear that it would be a cause for harming the Prophet 
if you were a sheep and you had that recognition, you wouldn't want to be a cause for causing any harm to the greatest of Allah's creation. So that's the, the bigger lesson that he's deriving from this incident. I will read the next narration. <coughs> Jabir ibn Abdullah radiallahu anhu related, a woman prepared some meat for the Messenger of Allah وسلم, and his companions. It was the habit of the companions that they would not eat until the Prophet وسلم, began eating. The Prophet وسلم, took a morsel of food, but he was unable to swallow it. The Prophet وسلم, then said, this sheep has been slaughtered without the permission of its owners. So this is another narration. The woman then said, O Prophet of Allah, we do not ask permission from the family of Sa'ad bin Mu'adh, and they do not ask permission from us. We take from them, and they take from us. So the lesson here in this hadith is recorded by Ahmed uh, with the sound chain. We derive two points from this hadith. Uh, point number one is that the Prophet received some kind of revelation or information about this sheep and its status, and that explicit permission was not taken for it to be slaughtered, meaning it was owned by someone else. It was taken and slaughtered, but without the explicit permission of the owner. And that became a barrier. That became something communicated to him, and he was unable to swallow that meat. And when he brought this up, they clarified that, yes, we don't have explicit permission. However, there is a basic understanding between us and the family of Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh that what's theirs is uh, ours, and what's ours is theirs, and we basically share these different things, and we have this common agreement based on the orf, right? So if you have neighbors and you're really close to them and it's understood that they can go and pick fruits from your orchard and you can go and take some from theirs and if you have a general understanding that that's okay, then you can do it. But because it wasn't explicit, that uh, halted. He wasn't able to swallow it and then that clarification came. So there's two points from there, the legal point and then the, the point that the uh, the sheep, he wasn't able to swallow it until that was clarified. Yes? I mean, this is making me think of <coughs> the importance of like where we get our food from, you know, like like with Muslims, yeah. the halalness of our food, yeah. right? And just not always eating, because some people think, oh, it's just meat, it's whatever. But I remember some of our, like some of the <coughs> shayuk that I've sat and learned from, talking about the spiritual effects of the food that we eat. Yeah and how it's been prepared and things like that. So when I'm listening to this, you know, I'm just thinking about that also. Yeah. So the way, the way we speak about these things is through upholding the barzakh. You know the barzakh. We think of barzakh as after death. But barzakh also means a barrier. بَيْنَهُمَا بَرْزَقٌ لَيَبْغِيَانٌ Between the salt water and the fresh water is a barrier. One does not uh, go into the other. And what I mean by that is, uh, when we speak about these matters in, in a, say, a more public, open setting to just the everyday Muslim, we speak about it from the area of 
of law, of fiqh. So in matters of fiqh, uh, things are discernible, they're uh, objective, they're verifiable, right? We just base it on the outward. So you have outward standards for what would be seen as halal to consume, and then there's standards for what would be haram to consume. And beyond that are other concerns. So that would be the other sea. So you have the salt, the salty water, and then the fresh water. The other water, the other sea, would be that of spiritual matters. How was the animal raised? Uh, how was it treated? Uh, you know, these questions of ownership and whatnot that are not immediately verifiable. Um, something can be halal, but it's not necessarily uh, done in the best way, right? So some people make this distinction between halal and tayyib. And this is tricky because if you say that something is halal but not tayyib, does that mean that what's the opposite of tayyib? Tayyib is the opposite would be something dirty or foul. If it's halal, it's halal. It's not haram to eat. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit wary at the sharp distinction between halal and tayyib where something could be halal but not tayyib while recognizing that the person who slaughters the animal may have an effect on your food. Uh, the way in which the animal was raised may have an impact on you. But those are not really areas that we can navigate in fiqh, right? Those are things that we, a person may just be more sensitive to or be more mindful of. Uh, for example, uh, there's a sheikh in Turkey, he's long since passed away, rahimahullah, he, he had a, a number of students and those students who would commit to learning from him and following his uh, instructions, he gave them a rule. And this is Turkey in the, you know, the 80s, it's quite secularized. And, you know, he, said, he said, no, he says, if you, you can't eat any meat unless the person slaughtering it prays five times a day. Now that's not a shudder-y ruling. You know, if a Muslim neglects Salat, they're a fasib, but they're still a Muslim. And because they're still Muslim, that will mean that their Zabiha is technically halal. But he recognized that those people who are Muslim but not praying, their state impacts what they interact with, meaning the animals they slaughter. And a person may ask, well, what's the proof for that? What is the proof that a person's state, their sins, would have an impact on the things they handle. And the proof is very clear in the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu where he spoke about Al-Hajr uh, Al-Aswad. Was it always the black stone? It wasn't always black. When it uh, was descended from the heavens, it was actually clear, it was white, and it became darkened due to what? The sins, the hadith literally says it was darkened over time due to the sins of people. So what does that tell you? It tells you that the sins of people can have a discernible physical impact on the things they handle, right? So just compare two meals. The meal of one's mother who cooks a nice home-cooked meal 
with dhikr and salawat, with love and concern, a good niyyah, a good niyyah. They prepare that food, it becomes like a shifa. And then compare that to the dish prepared by someone. Let's say it's not even a meat dish. Let's just say it's, a, I don't know, some vegetarian dish. But it's prepared by an atheist, someone who's cursing and insulting people back in the kitchen, who's angry, who hates his job, and who's bitter. Would you think that that state would have an impact on what he's prepared? Of course. Of course it would. And this is so mujarrab, it's so well known that if a person was, uh, let's say they were in Mecca, in Medina for a long time, or they were, you know, they were out, you know, doing intense ibadah, or they secluded themselves for a long time, and they're just in a very heightened state of iman, and then they come back and they visit their friends, it's a different wavelength. Sometimes the friends would say, okay, let's go to a restaurant. And, I, and I've seen instances like that where a person's in such a state, the, the sheikh will say, give him a Pepsi. You know, just give him a Pepsi, just go drink a Coke and watch a movie or something. Because they are not able to handle like this intense spiritual state that they are in, right? Because things impact you, right? That doesn't mean that those things are haram, it just means they have an impact. So, yeah. So. Yeah, well, the thing is, in the Qur'an, Allah Ta'ala mentions halalan tayyiba, where it's, it's basically a, a na'at of the halal, right? It's a descriptive of the halal. So, it's like saying, here is a, a heavy book. You can't separate the heavy from the book, right? It's a part of the description itself. So, something that's halal is but not tayyib. If we accepted that dichotomy, it would be something like what you said, where maybe it became defiled, right? Uh, not with najasa. Um, you know, there's different ways of looking at it. Um, what, I what I would be cautioning against is the idea that there are two separate categories where something can be halal but not tayyib, or tayyib but not halal. Whereas it's a descriptive of the halal. So if an animal, let's say an animal wasn't treated really that well, let's say it came you know, from some factory feedlot, and, and, but it was killed by a Muslim, it was killed properly, maybe it's not the healthiest meat to eat, but it's, it's halal, right? We wouldn't say that it's uh, filthy in the sense, as a legal term, right? Because that would mean that it's haram, right? So, but something can be halal, but not killed in the best of ways, or raised in the best of ways. So a person could be technically doing something halal, but it's, there's a higher path, there's a higher standard they would want to aim towards, if they're able, which is to ensure that the quality is better, or that the person involved in the killing is someone whose character and deen they're, they're, they're pleased with. You know, this is a person who prays, who has mindfulness of Allah. That's really important because if they're a Muslim but they're a little bit corrupt, you could say on the surface that it's technically halal, but you know, you know, if they don't have taqwa to observe the five prayers, how sure are you really? <laughs>
that they have the taqwa to observe the basics of halal slaughter. So on the surface, you can't say it's haram, but there's other questions that may, that may give you pause, that may cause you to reconsider who you get your meat from. But yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay, so the next section, uh, within, or it's page 102, the next paragraph, he goes into adab, to the etiquette that animals showed with the Prophet He says, animals would observe due etiquette, adab, in the presence of the Prophet out of love and concern for his well-being. Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu anha related the family of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam had an animal. When the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam would leave, it would play and go here and there. But when it sensed that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam had entered, it remained still and did not move as long as the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam was in the house as it would hate to disturb him. And this is recorded by Imam Ahmed. So animals had adab in the presence of the Prophet Likewise, he says, animals honored the mention of his name and they were in awe of him. They loved him and were in awe of him even in his absence. It is related from Safina the freed slave of the Messenger of Allah I was traveling by sea when my ship sank. I held on to a plank of wood and it drifted me towards a forest. There was a lion in the forest which was about to go after me when I said, Ya Abel Harith. This is the, the kunya for a lion. You know, in Arabic, some of the animals have kunyas. Because what does Harith mean? Does anyone know? Ha so literally, Harith would be the one who's uh, tilling the soil and harvesting. But it also means the one who's you know, going after something to get it, right? They, they covet that thing. So he says, Ya Abel Harith, calling the lion by that kunya. Does anyone know the kunya for a whale? question for the, the Arabists out there. It's called Abu Khalid. Why? why? Because of? Uh, I don't know if it's because of Sayyidina Yunus. I think it predates, uh, this is just it's ancient Arabic. Um, Abu Khalid because uh, whales have a long lifespan and they're huge. So, you know, Khuld is, you know, Something that's long-lasting, Khalidina fiha, right, eternally. So, so Abu Harith, he says, Ya Abu Harith, I am the Mawla, the freed slave of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. The lion bowed its head and came towards me. It then pushed me with its shoulders until it guided me out of the forest and placed me upon a road. I felt that it was saying farewell to me, and that was the last that I saw of it. So this is recorded by Imam al-Hakim, as well as al-Tabarani, Abu Nu'aym, al-Bayhaqi, among others. So this would be seen as something of a miracle, would it not? 
Because ordinarily, if you find yourself in the forest and the lion sees you, what's going to happen? You're going to be lunch for the lion. And here, not only does the lion not attack him, but it also submits itself and nudges him, guiding him towards a road where he can find a populated location and get to safety and find his way back some way, somehow. So that is definitely out of the ordinary and would be considered a karama, a miracle. And this is a karama of the, of the Sahabi, Safina. And as we've mentioned a, a few times before, when we talked about miracles, all of the miracles of the Sahaba, of the Tabi'un and the second generation and the third generation and on to today, Every miracle of every member of the Ummah of the Prophet every miracle they receive from Allah is actually a miracle ascribed to the Prophet is actually his. Why is that? Well, why did they receive the miracle? Well, even if they came after and didn't encounter him, even if it was someone today, it's still ascribed to him because they receive the karama from Allah because they are from the ummah of the Prophet It's an honoring of him. So it's like an extension, right? I have a little question in this right now. Sure. What does Mawla mean here? So Mawla would be someone who uh, was a slave and was either captured or sold in some fashion and came into the possession of someone and that person then freed them. But in freeing them, they're not completely out on their own having to make a way for themselves without support. They have a kind of client relationship with the one who freed them. They may still work for them. They are allied with them. The, that, that family unit is looking after them and they're still affiliated with them in, in some way. So in, in prior to Islam, that kind of relationship would exist among freed slaves and their clients or the ones who previously owned them. Um, it existed in Islam, as you see in this narration. And there were a few people like, or a number of people like this. Uh, Thawban is another one. Thawban was a mawla. Uh, and there are others, and this uh, this exists, and this is a praiseworthy setup. It's basically they're free from slavery, but they they don't they're not uh, removed from any uh, support network whatsoever, where they're completely on their own. This is important if they are a slave and they don't have family there, they don't have tribal ties there. You know, how do they even come into slavery in the first place? It was probably because of some war, or maybe their parents were born into slavery, and they were eventually sold and released. So they're not released completely on their own. They are released, but they're still within that social support network. Yeah. <coughs> he says, the trees and rocks also prostrated to him in love, reverence, and to greet him, just as the animals prostrated as related in many narrations. It is related from Anas ibn Malik anhu. One of the families of the Ansar had a camel which was acting difficult with them. 
Yeah, Yastar Asad yani is rebelling, it's not listening. It would not let them ride him. They came to the Prophet and said, We have a camel that is being stubborn and prevents us from riding him. And we need to water the date trees and the plantations. So they need to use the camel, but it's not listening, it's not getting up, it's not allowing them to uh, get on him to ride it. The Prophet said to the companions, Let us go. They went and entered the enclosure where the camel was. The Prophet walked towards it and the Ansar exclaimed, O Messenger of Allah, he has become like a dog and we're afraid for you lest he is violent. And they're worried that it could be acting in some way that may harm him. The Prophet said, he has no grudge against me. When the camel saw the Prophet he came towards him and fell prostrate in front of him. The Prophet took its forelock, meaning the front of its head, like here, and there was nothing more docile, you know docile, calm, just not rebelling at all, more docile than that camel. Then he took it to work. The companion said, O Messenger of Allah, this is a brute beast and it prostrates to you. We who are rational, and the aqil, we're, we're human beings, right? We're a superior creation. We should prostrate to you more so. Yeah, we have more, more right to be people who prostrate to you because we understand we're human beings. If the, if the camel is prostrating, shouldn't we do it too? And he says, it is not appropriate for any human being to prostrate to another human being. So we know that that existed in the previous sharia, the previous laws out of honor, but that was abrogated through the sharia of the Prophet He says, it's not appropriate for any human being to prostrate to any human being. Were it so, so, I would order the woman to prostrate to her husband due to the greatness of his right over her. Uh, and there's a few hadith like this, uh, in, with this final narration. Yeah, I know some people, they have a problem with that hadith, right? But the, the problem is really with their own understanding, because the Prophet is not saying she has to. That's haram. It's haram. Uh, Mu'adh ibn Jabal went on a trip and saw the Christians prostrating to their leaders. And he said, the, the Messenger of Allah is greater than these people. He has more right. So he returns from his trip and he goes and he literally prostrates before the Prophet out of reverence and honor, not ibadah. And the Prophet doesn't say, Oh, you're not mushrik. He wasn't doing shirk. He wasn't worshiping him. He was just honoring him. But he told them, he told him this is not allowed in our sharia, not allowed in, the, in Islam. So it's haram. But he's saying, ala sabil al-iftirad, as we say, yani, for argument's sake, if, if it was, it would be uh, that kind of respect uh, because of the, the haq that he would have over the wife. But it's not allowed. But you can make the point to emphasize the haq by mentioning that 
as a possibility, as a something that is not allowed, but if it were, this is who would have more right, uh, or he would order that. But it's not the case in Sharia that uh, one could do that. So this is the end of that section. I believe this is all section one. So page one, basically, to 104 is section one, although in that section one there were numerous, or maybe a few, chapters and sub-chapters. So we now come to... Could, could I just clarify? In regards to prostrating, uh, you know like in, like in Japanese, Chinese culture... The bowing. The bowing when they greet each other, or if you have your child in some kind of like karate, karate kung fu, whatever, is that type of thing permitted too? Like, I think we talked about this, but I forgot, and I just want to clarify it in my mind, like this habit. Yeah. Uh -huh. There... There are a lot of ulama, a lot of scholars, who would say that these uh, forms of bowing yeah. are prohibited uh, because they're technically bowing. And they're not saying it's forbidden because it is shirk. They're not, no one's saying, not oh, you're worshipping the karate instructor. Mm -hmm. But because the hadith prohibits yeah. uh, prostrating, bowing, and the like, they apply that hukum and the hadith to those instances as well. Um, there are some ulama who take an alternative viewpoint and they say that if it's not outright sajda or outright bowing, but it's what in Arabic we call inhina, you know, um, it, you, it's genuflecting, I guess is the best word in, in English, which is a, basically a way of saying big word but it's because for me coming from a catholic background we say genuflect it's yeah that's actually a, kneeling but that's a technical yeah. meaning in the catholic church yeah, okay. i mean just the bare english yeah. meaning genuflecting yeah. mean, you know, you're making an indication with your head yeah. so if you go to an elder uh, and you want to kiss their hand yeah. right you would have to you you would take the hand and do that you're not bowing to the hand no. necessarily you're just you know genuflecting showing respect like that that generally wouldn't be prohibit, prohibited. So I recall a passage from uh, Imam al-Adabi, Hashid al-Adabi, al-Risala, Ibn Abi Zayd al-Qayrawani, this is the Maliki text. In his Hashiyah on the Risala of Ibn Abi Zayd, he does talk about this issue. And he says that if it is a cultural practice of this genuflection or uh, genuflecting in slightly inclining like that uh, as a customary greeting, as like a tahiyyah, does not tantamount to uh, prostrating or bowing as, as, as we would recognize it, then that would be permissible. But if it's more explicit, then that would be forbidden. So, yeah. <coughs> okay, so the next section is section Where are we? Page 10. Part 2. The Blessed Names. A little bit of everything. Yeah. So we'll just read what he says in the beginning, and then I have some things I want to uh, add to this discussion. So the this starts on page 106. The title of this is The Necessity of knowing the names of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. 
So we know that among his names, there are two that are the most widely known. Which are, what are they? Muhammad and Ahmad. Both of them are mentioned in the Quran. And in the hadith, it mentions Inna li asma. And he mentions five names. But then there are other narrations which mention other names. And then there are descriptive names that we can extract from the Quran. So what we understand is that the Prophet has many, many names. As a general principle, a general idea in Arabic that كَثْرُتُ الْأَسْمَى تَدُلُّ عَلَىٰ عَظَمَةِ الْمُسَمَّةِ The abundance of names for something indicates the greatness or the importance or significance of that thing named. And you see this in the Qur'an, and you, and you see this even prior to the Qur'an, just the Arabic language. So in the Arabic language, you have 60 plus words for love. You have 40 to 50 plus words for a horse. 100 plus words for a camel. 20 to 30 words for a tent. Why these things? Because these things were central to the life of the ancient Arab nomadic people. Horses, camels, tents, swords, uh, what else? Dogs. There's 70 odd words in Arabic for dog. And there's actually a, f a funny story about that. Uh, there was a man in Egypt, he was an Azhari. This is hundreds of years ago. And he's, he was a blind man, a blind scholar, a scholar of Arabic. And he was blind. So one day he's walking through the market and he accidentally bumps into someone. Bumping into this person, the other guy gets angry. And he says, Watch where you're going, ya kelb, oh dog. And then the blind Egyptian sheikh, he says, the true dog is the one who doesn't know 70 words for dog. He's saying basically, the true dog is the jahil. So Imam al-Suyuti, the great Egyptian scholar, he mentions that story and he says, I wanted to escape that description, so I write this short little risada on the names in Arabic for dog. So he collects the names and explains how each one is distinct and how similar and what it means, uh, all being words for a dog, right? So you have that for dog, horse, tent, camel, sword, love, lion, right? Farrat min qaswara, right? You have different words in the Quran for lion. Uh, so this is reflected in the Quran as well. Uh, if you go from the beginning to the end of the Quran and collect all of the names of Yawmul Qiyamah, you have just as many. I don't know the exact number, but it's close to 50 or 60 names. All different names for Yawm Al-Qiyamah. So, Yawm Al-Qiyamah, Yawm Al-Deen, Al-Ghashiyah, Al-Waqi'ah, Yawm Al-Taghabun, Yawm Al-Hashr, Yawm Al-Ba'ah, Yawm Al-Tanad, right? There's so many different names, right? And these are often descriptive names, but they're names nonetheless. 
So the, the principle being that the more names you have for something, the more importance it is in, uh, in your culture. Like what's something that has a lot of names in English? Money. Money, cash, dollars, cream, ducats, dough, bucks, what else? What's that? Benjamins, right? Dead presidents, right? There's so many different names. Because culturally, people give a lot of importance to money, so they have different names that they've coined to, you know, for, for money. And that's just a cultural phenomenon, and it exists in every culture, right? I know in Finland, for instance, and I lived in Finland for some time, they have something like 80 words for snow. Because snow is everywhere, it's there most of the year, minus a few months. So you wonder, well, why would they have so many names for snow? It's because they're so intimately familiar with snow that they have names for all of the different types of snow. The different ways it lands, the different ways it looks, the different sounds it makes when you walk on it, they have different ways of describing it. Whereas here, snow, right? Black ice or whatever. We have a few words, that's about it. So we'll go to the book now. He says, uh, veneration, love, and thankfulness. Imam Yusuf al Nabahani has mentioned in his Shema'il, uh, Imam Yusuf al-Nabahani, rahimahullah, he died in, I, I want to say, 1910, maybe maybe 1920, I can't remember the exact date. He died quite early on. Uh, he was a great scholar. He was a Qadi in, uh, in, in Palestine. Uh, I, I believe he passed away in Tripoli, in Lebanon. He was a, a great Qadi in the Ottoman period and a great author who wrote many, many books, most of which centered on the kinds of things we're talking about in this book, all about the Prophet uh, Perhaps his greatest book is Jawahir al-Bihar fi Fadail al-Nabi al-Mukhtar in four volumes, uh, which literally means the, the gems of the oceans and the virtue of the chosen. Uh, he is a wonderful author, and he, he says here that he's mentioned in his Shema'il, and he's referring to a book that he wrote called Wasa'ilul Wusul ila Shema'il Rasul, the means of arrival to knowledge of the qualities of Allah's Messenger. And alhamdulillah, this book is translated. Um, uh, yours truly, Al Abdul Ta'if, he translated it, I want to say 2014. Uh, it's available. And in many ways, it's better, it's superior to the Shema'il of Imam Tirmidhi, uh, at least looking at the content, because he mentions what's in the Shema'il and more, along with commentary. So in some ways, it's a more accessible and even superior book. So he says in the chapter on the names, the names of the Prophet are part of his virtues. For they specify and personalize him. Through knowledge of his names, does one achieve greater knowledge of him. Through his names and attributes, does one understand his immense rank with his creator. 
<coughs> now, before I move on, this is a kind of sub-genre in this area of study. What we earlier called Al-Ulum Al-Muhammadiyah, so Sirah, Shama'il, Khasa'is, Maghazi, Manaqib, all of these things. Within this field of study, studying the person of the Prophet the knowledge of the names is a subgenre. it's a part of that. And there are many, many works that have been written in Arabic, uh, also in, in Urdu, I know of a very large work that got translated uh, uh, concerning the names of the Prophet And it's important to learn the names because the names correspond perfectly to the one named. Right? Ism al-Musamma, as we say in Arabic, the name given to him, its meaning corresponds to him, to who he is. And there's congruence between his names and his reality. Right? Let's say you have a person named uh, Sa'id. What does Sa'id mean? Happy. But is there a per maybe there's a person named Sa'id who's quite depressed all the time. So the name doesn't really correspond to the one named, right? Uh, and how many people do we know? You know, their name is a good, praiseworthy name, but you know, I think it speaks to most people who don't, they don't always live up to the beauty of their actual name, right? Except for the Prophet His name, he lives up to the meanings of those names. There's no uh, incongruence between the name and what he's reflecting of its meaning. So when you learn the names, you're not just learning, oh, these are Arabic words that have this meaning and that meaning. You're learning his reality because there's no incongruence between the name and the names, right? So <coughs> it was a, a custom of the Prophet ﷺ to change names of some people. It's not like some people think. Some people, they think that if you become a Muslim, you just have to change your name automatically. That's not how it works. Most of the Sahaba did not change their names because their names were already praiseworthy. But there are some people in the history of Islam who converted and the Prophet ﷺ changed their name either because their original name at birth is associated with idol worship, like Abu Huraira. His birth name was uh, Abdul Shams, the slave of the sun. It was changed to Abdul Rahman. His name is Abdul Rahman ibn Safar. We know him as Abu Huraira, but his name was changed to Abdul Rahman. We have uh, we have uh, one woman. Her name was Asiya, which means disobedient, and it was changed. We have uh, things like this, but we also have in the Sira. Uh, opposite examples. We have Abu al-Hakam. Abu al-Hakam is known, his kunya, Abu al-Hakam, you know, he who is wise, his kunya Abu al-Hakam, and Abu al-Hakam's name was changed because he was not a wise man. He was changed to Abu Jahl because the name didn't correspond to the reality. Right? You have Abu Amr al-Rahib in Medina, 
who in the early seerah, in the early Medinan period, we learn about him, Abu Amr al-Rahib was not an idol worshiper among the people of Yathrib. Uh, but he basically pretended to be not, not a Jew, nor a Christian, but a Hanif, someone who is claiming to be upon the, the original way of Ibrahim salam. But he was a corrupt man, and he gained a following. He was basically a fake sheikh, that's what we will call him today. And he gained a following around him because he positioned himself as this wise man who transcended the idol worship of his people and claimed to follow the haqq and the truth and you know worship Allah. But then when Rasulullah comes, he rejects him and he denigrates him and he insults him. And there's a long story about him because he appears and reappears at different times. But his name by the Sahaba was not Abu Amr al-Rahib, the monk. It was changed to Abu Amr al-Fasiq, the corrupt. So he's, he's, you know, in the history of Islam, he's the first fake sheikh, Abu Amr al-Rahib. So that name was changed. So this uh, sub-genre is, I'm kind of giving you a little muqaddimah here before we go into the book. Uh, it's been the subject of independent books. Many ulama have written independent books just cataloging, documenting, and explaining the names of the Prophet ﷺ, both in the Qur'an uh, and in the Sunnah and in the previous scriptures as well. So we have, for example, uh, the, the earliest work that we know of in history is Al-Munbi bi Asma'i Nabi by the great scholar of Arabic, Ibn Faris, and he died in 395 after Hijrah. We have also a poem on the names of the Prophet and their meanings by Imam Al-Qurtubi, 671. We have Ibda'ul Khafa bi Sharhi Asma'il Mustafa, which means making the unclear clear in commentary on the names of the chosen one by Imam Abu al-Hasan Ahmad al-Harali died 637 after Hijrah Bushra al-Labib bi dhikr al-Habib by Imam Ibn Sayyid al-Nas the scholar of Sirah he has a book on the names died 734 we have Iqd uh, al-Zabarjad bin Hurufi Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam by Sheikh Muhammad Abdul Wahab al Ahmadi, uh, who was a, a Palestinian. Uh, and he died 1200 after Hijrah. This is a very beautiful book. Uh, it was recently a manuscript and then it was recently published. We have Fakhrul Abrar fi ma fi ismi Muhammadin min al Asrar by Imam Shamsuddin ibn Muhammad al Khariri uh, from Khalil, Palestine. He died 1147. Nahjath al-Sawiyya by Imam al-Suyuti Al-Riyad al-Aniqa Fi Sharhi Asma'i Sayyid al-Khariqa Also by Imam al-Suyuti And we have what I consider the best work ever on the topic Tathkirat al-Muhibbin Bi Sharhi Asma'i Sayyid al-Mursaleem Sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam 
by Muhammad bin Qasim al-Rasar. Muhammad bin Qasim al-Rasar, who died 895. He was a scholar of Qayrwan. So that was the institution in Tunis. And this is arguably the best book written on the topic. The most exhaustive, the most detailed, the, the best presentation on the issue. Uh, it's been published uh, in Arabic. Um, I was working on a kind of summary commentary. It's one of those projects in the works. I don't know when it will be finished. But that's a work that I think is superior to the others because it's very detailed and also very scholarly. And he doesn't go into explaining all of the names. What he does is he, he explains all of the names of the Prophet ﷺ mentioned by Imam uh, Qadr Iyad in his Shifa. So Qadr Iyad, his famous book, Al-Shifa, Bita'arifi Hukuq al-Mustafa, he mentions 214 names of the Prophet ﷺ with a brief explanation. Imam Muhammad bin Qasim al-Rasar takes those names and make, writes a commentary on them. So he only covers 214 names. <coughs> so that begs the question, how many names are there? Uh, you find different lists because what's happening is scholars are looking in the Quran for descriptive names uh, or they take an action, a fi'l, and they derive from it a, a, an ism Right, Ismu Fari, the one who's doing that action, and they give that to him as a name. So, this is not the same, you know, uh, as say the 99 names of Allah Ta'ala, where you have very explicit mention. What you have are creative endeavors to find names from descriptions. Because if he does the action, the praiseworthy action, then he is rightfully described as the one who does it. Therefore, it is a kind of name. Ismul Sifa, it's the noun or the name describing the quality of that person who does that thing. Right? So if you said that the Prophet is Al-Qa'im bi Amrillah, that name is extracted from the ayat that mentioned him. Fastaqim kama umirt. Right? Uh, being upright and establishing the commands of Allah, and so on. So, we'll go to the book now. Let me see what time it is. Okay, so, he says in page 106, it's mentioned in the Shifa by Qadr Iyal, from among the unique attributes of the Prophet Sallallahu is that Allah has included the names of the Prophet ﷺ as part of his praise. In the remembrance of his names, he has placed a vast debt of gratitude owed to him. Knowledge of the names is a purpose in itself. It is something that is sought after in and of itself. The abundant names indicate his greatness through them, one can venerate him and increase their love for him. Knowing the names individually also increases one in love and reverence for him, and it includes an abundance of salutations for him. It's, uh, I'll read the next paragraph, we'll probably stop here today. He says, to know that his many names indicate his greatness. Imam Yusuf al-Nabahani has said that Imam al-Jazuli 
has mentioned 201 names of the Prophet in Dala'ibul Khayrat. After him, Imam Suyulti recorded 340 or so names of the Prophet He also recorded four uh, kuna, four kunyas of the Prophet Abu Al-Qasim, Abu Ibrahim, Abu Al-Mu'minin, and Abu Aramil. So Abu Al-Qasim, Abu Ibrahim is literal. Like he was literally the father of Ibrahim and Qasim. Uh, Abu Al-Mu'minin is actually derived from uh, both uh, a, a, narration, a narration as well as a variant reading of the Quran. <coughs> and Abu Aramil is from a hadith, the father of the widows. Al-Hafid al-Sakhawi collected 430 names of the Prophet And finally, Imam al-Nawawi has mentioned that some of the Sufiyya have said that Allah has 1,000 names and likewise the Prophet has 1,000 names. As we say, uh, just sheer abundance of names. As far as literal listing of numbers, the longest I've seen is a more recent work that has 2,000 names. Yeah, 2,000. Qadr Iyad has mentioned, the author of the Shifa, know that Allah has granted many of his prophets miracles that are derived from their names, such as Ismail and Ishaq, from whose names knowledge and forbearance are derived. Ibrahim with forbearance and Nuh with gratitude. So what he's saying is that if you look at the, the meanings of those names, of those previous prophets, you will find miracles associated with them that bear some resemblance to the meaning, right? Or some qualities that reflect the meaning, right? So you have in Ismail, it is said that the, you know, the one who hears God, right? Uh, Ishaq, I'm not, I don't remember. Uh, but for Nuh there's the meaning of, uh, of pleading and begging and expressing gratitude. Uh, he says, however, he preferred Muhammad over them all, adorning him in his divine book and upon the tongues of his prophets with an abundance of names. I mean, so he has more names than, than they have, right? Um, like he, he came in recent works, prophets of uh, 2000? 2000, yeah. And that recent work is really uh, drawing from the previous works and going into the previous scriptures and just adding and adding and adding and to keep doing it and they're all true descriptions right it, it's helpful if you understand that the, the the reason why you have 200 here or 300 there or 400 here or thousand there it's because these are all descriptions and you can describe him in a variety of ways using a variety of praiseworthy descriptions so it, it goes back to the author's knowledge of the Qur'an and the Sunnah, their, their istiqara, their knowledge of previous scriptures, and also their creativity. Because it's a matter of giving a truthful description in Arabic that is a kind of name 
for the one who has that quality. And that's why you have so many here and so many there. Um, we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't say that the, the names are tawqifiyah uh, or, or as strict on the same level as the divine names. You, know, you, you name Allah what He names Himself. But you could describe Allah based on what, how He describes Himself using words, but you wouldn't say that this is the formal name. Whereas for the Prophet ﷺ, they're more like awsaf, right? They're descriptive names. So, al-bab awsa. The door is wider in that case. So inshallah we'll stop here. Uh, and when we come back, we'll go into the actual names. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.